Hello, this is Coffee Dave once again, back after a hiatus for the fourth part of Only Small Actors. We begin with chapter 25, which is entitled Bellicose. What do you mean he skipped town? He was out on bail and then he skipped? The man is a foreign national with a passport. Why didn't they take his passport? Oh, they did? Then I can guess where he went. Is his brother in town? Ah, he's gone too? Okay, I know where both of them are. Manhattan, Kansas. Seymour was passionately angry. You don't punch Seymour Weintraub in the face in a room full of movers and shakers and the occasional tourist. You don't punch Seymour Weintraub in the face under any circumstance. Seymour wanted his recompense and he wanted justice to be swift. Candy passed on the information to Herman and they were in the process of demanding 20 million for pain, suffering, embarrassment, humiliation, and alienation of an eating establishment. Seymour did not know if he could ever set foot in cats again under the circumstances. It sharply restricted his lunchtime meeting places, and therefore his ability to do deals. Can't do lunch, can't do deals. At least not in this town. Bitsy took upon herself warning the Boop family of the possible designs of the Hamed brothers. She reached an old gentleman on the phone who seemed a little confused at first, but soon understood that two gentlemen, yes, they were of an ethnic persuasion, and yes, they, they were of a religious sect, although Bitsy really didn't know what that had to do with anything. The important point was that they apparently had developed some interest in his granddaughter. They might have some designs on her, and she should be warned. The family should let her know. A call from a stranger out of the blue might not be taken seriously. Curiously, the gentlemen ended their conversation muttering about finding some key or other and did not say either thank you or goodbye. Some people, thought Bitsy. 26. Bail-jumping blackguards. Candy rolled over on the California King and looked up at her bas-relief. As usual at this time of day, the setting sun cast a seeming flush on the flesh of the orgiastic participants in that work. Or was it a blush on their cheeks? Was the blush there because of what they were doing or the performance on the bed below? Candy gave up the ability to blush. She dropped it along with trust in elected officials, the efficacy of monkey glands, and the constancy of men. Bitsy accepted. She could not think of a woman of her acquaintance who had not been deceived. Candy guessed that Seymour might have tried had he not been so besotted with his wife. She knew it was, in part, his admiration for her genius. Candy did not know if she could stand living with a genius. 
It was lucky for their menage that Herman, the king of torts, was a prosaic attorney and Byron, the jack of tarts, a decent director, but no Scorsese. He could tell a cheap horror story, and that little romantic picture was not bad, but genius? His English accent, with a touch of working class in it, did well for him with the women, however. A threesome's pillow talk. You needed to take a number. Byron tried to talk Herman out of pursuing Privarti with a bounty hunter. After all, the man was worth millions, as was his brother, and humiliating him seemed more than a touch vindictive. Herman said Privarti was a bail-jumping blackguard. Did he use that old-fashioned term to impress Byron? And anyway, Seymour was so angry that he would be placated with nothing less than brute force. But what about Savarti? He surely wasn't to be brought back forcibly. He had not skipped out on a court appearance. Herman countered that the brother was probably instrumental in facilitating his relative's disappearance, and he was a witness and had been ordered to appear and give testimony. Both, and here Herman used the term most offensive to any right-thinking 21st century American, would be dragged back to California by their black balls. The mention of balls was Candy, the queen of their hearts, cue to cut into the conversation, so she informed both men in her life that she was horny, and if her needs were not addressed soon, she would tell the world that they were nothing but a pair of flaccid, phallist faggots. And now, dear listener, as the two gentlemen prepare to prove their mettle, averting our eyes, we will proceed to the bedroom door and silently tiptoe out, sparing ourselves what those poor frozen figures on that bas-relief cannot look away from. It may be good to be a king, but it is better to be the omniscient narrator. 27. Backstage Bertie. Albert never really felt comfortable with rappers. Master Rasta and the Killers were no exception, especially when they looked at him all gangster-like when introduced. He was not a proficient lip-reader, but he thought Master Rasta whispered white devil to Maximum Killer. Albert didn't blame them. They traveled with their own opening act, a comedian named Hog Jowls Henderson, and the Harris boys had called in a few favors to bump Hog Jowls from this one gig. How Hog Jowls did not much like it either, and Albert feared he might be getting dubious packages in the mail once again. He hoped that they couldn't trace him back to his own digs, since he was using a new name, confected for this premiere performance. The whole Marx Brothers fiasco came back as he applied makeup and changed into the requisite t-shirt and black jeans. Over an hour till showtime to stew and fret that he would run out on stage and shout, Go Jayhawks! and be summarily beaten to a pulp. He pulled out the joke list for the seemingly thousandth time 
and went over the sequence, anticipating the laughs and tried without an audience to get some semblance of timing. Disguised, he'd slipped into open mic nights to try this new routine and was frustrated by the inattention of the audience. To a man, they seemed only interested in achieving a state of numbness the materials suggested by the Harris brothers could not penetrate. He went to Club Pickle and used his Holocaust material to evoke some life in an audience and was able to avoid most hurled objects. The stamping of the crowd 15 minutes before curtain time became louder. He began to fantasize tumbrils and riding a cart drawn through a mob of sans-culottes baying for his blood, or perhaps baying for him to get his chalky white ass off the stage and bring out Master Rasta and the killers. Why had the Harrises put him in this spot? It was fine to get back on a horse as long as said horse was at a pony ride, but this felt like mounting a bucking bronco. The audience grew louder. Was he imagining it? Did he really hear cries of castrate the comedian, flay the funny man, humiliate the humorist? And now, ladies and gentlemen, direct from a sold-out stay at the Sand Dunes in Las Vegas, the comedy stylings of Bertie Bunkum. And he was pushed out on the stage. 28. Barney Buzzard. Betty sat in the third row. The boys had been so nice to her since she returned from her short stay in Germany, and she received so many lovely compliments when they showed her film. She really didn't understand much of it. What was the uncertainty principle anyway? And the black shirts and the brown shirts? She guessed there had been a lack of competent dry cleaners in those days, so you couldn't be sure whether there would be ring around the collar when you got your laundry back. The group performing that evening was notorious for their cutting-edge political material, or so Helen Moskowitz, her roommate, told her. Helen was Jewish and from New York, so that made her an authority on all things cultural. Helen had posters on her side of the room of a band that was so avant-garde that their sets were nothing but 50 minutes of silence accompanied by miming. The lead singer used American Sign Language and had been arrested on an obscenity charge when some visiting students from Goledet caught the act. The audience was noisy and excited. She had not remembered this much anticipation since Lance Burton appeared. The rumor was he would make failing grades vanish from the university computer. At two minutes after eight, the announcement was made and a fellow in a black t-shirt and jeans seemed to be hurled from the wings. He adjusted the mic and then looking out into the almost silent throng, choked out, hello, uh, followed by dead silence. It's great to be here and uh, again, silence. Betty rose in her seat and called out, Kansas State University. Bertie Buncombe managed to gather himself up and with a nod to her shouted, Go Wildcats! Which was followed by a roar and applause, giving him enough time to segue into the airplane jokes, the drunk jokes, the beer jokes, and finally his stash of weed material 
interlarded with a few show business stories. The 20 minutes hurried by, and after a signal from the wings, he bowed amidst reasonable applause, pumped his fist, smiled, and waved toward the seat of his lady's savior, but saw she was gone. Had his act been that flat? His happiness began to fade as he walked into the wings and then saw the girl standing there waiting. She ran up to him and asked breathlessly, Are you Barney Buzzard? 29. Bounty Hunter Seymour was early for his appointment by five full minutes. It was a degree of politesse that he felt willing to offer to a senior partner who had taken on the case with no retainer and waved off any discussion of fees with, It's my pleasure. And Seymour was sure that it was. The scrap over the beach house, now Flotsam, had been widely discussed as real estate was second only to who screwed who or had been screwed over both literally and figuratively. As he sat leafing through a glossy, promising heaven on earth for a price, he was distracted by a change in the office atmosphere. A feral aroma now underlay the piped-in perfume and the cologne and the scents of the staff. It was compounded of tobacco, leather, whiskey, sweat, and a soupçon of unchanged underwear with a skid mark. He looked up and contemplated someone else's navel, showing through a leather vest, which was atop an all-too-short t-shirt. The t-shirt bore a picture of a bear and the legend, Every day the bear cat gets you. Raising his eyes higher, he finally reached a melon, which looked familiar and even more recognizable as the scowl, changed to a golden smile, helped by several gold teeth. Seymour Reintraub, right? You gave the go-ahead for that mini-series about me and Stella. And Seymour remembered Bounty Hunter, a three-parter from several seasons before, which had done well and popularized the profession. Unfortunately, a number of ill-prepared individuals were seduced by the romance of the work and either arrested the wrong person or overmatched and suffered grievous bodily harm from their queries. The network had been sued and settled and his bonus vanished for a year. The argument that Ben Casey had not precipitated a rash of amateur neurosurgery did not apparently hold much water. The lawyer's fees added up to more than the plaintiffs received and the network was disinclined to rerun the program or do sequels. I'm going to be looking for your man, said Bearcat once again, flashing the golden grin. It, besides the bear logo, appeared on billboards and his business card. At that point, both were called into the office of a junior associate of Herman, where Seymour filled in both with as much information as he knew about Betty Boop. Bearcat had sources which revealed a paper trail of credit cards receipts which led to Manhattan, Kansas. Curiously enough, the brothers had not been staying in the same hotel, eating at the same restaurant, and in general seemed to be studiously avoiding each other on their cross-country trip. Maybe they think they'll be less conspicuous if they stay apart, ventured Seymour. Less obvious than what? Two aging Muslims chasing after a co-ed 
known to the whole campus for appearing nude in a major motion picture? I'm guessing everybody at Kansas State knows the girl on sight, and probably she's never alone, thus it's in the stall of a crapper. Maybe they have different plans regarding the kid. Well, that's for sure. Each brother wants her for himself. I don't think this is a divide and conquer. They've divided themselves, and now it's just a question of picking up the elder or maybe scaring off the younger. Problem is, since they got to Kansas, they stopped using them credit cards. The last of them used was to get some cash advances. I think they're going the cash route to make themselves less traceable. Well, we know what each of them wants. Let's put a tail on the girl, and when they reveal themselves, grab them up and scare them off. I hate to use the kid as bait. I got an idea. Maybe we can spare BB by using NN. Let me talk to Byron Bannister and see if he'll offer a talented actress a starring role. Hello? Who's this, please? Uh, Bitsy Weintraub. Your phone number was on my caller ID. This is Marianne Boop. Did you crawl earlier today? I did. I spoke to an elderly-sounding man with an accent. Did he speak to you? I believe you spoke with my father. He's not been right lately. Oh, I'm sorry if I called any trouble. What happened? Well, apparently he tried to pick the lock on the gun cabinet. Oh, dear. And when he couldn't, he got an axe from the shed and broke the cabinet open. Oh, Jesus. He's taken the shotgun, a rifle with a telescopic sight, and ammunition for both. Oh, mother of God. And he left a note in Krasakian. From what I can make out, he says he's sectarian ethnics are back and, and they're going to cleanse our Betty. Oh, Jesus. What did you tell him, for God's sake? And at that point, a mortified Bitsy told another generation of the Boop family of her concerns, and all the while, the starkly violent image of her award-winning Pieta floated before her eyes, and the taste of gall flooded her throat. 30. Buffo. Listen, Mr. Bannister, I can't be out of character here. I get off at 10. Meet me then, she said in her best stage whisper, so the other staff might envy the attention paid her by a very eligible bachelor, although in Hollywood that term usually meant mother issues or faggot or both. Byron looked at his watch and turned back to his mules marinaire with pommes frites and reflected on the limits of being an omnivore. Tom and Carl faxed him the outline for Chop Shop, the prequel. It blamed feasting on radioactive grubs by contestants in a fear factor type program as the origin of Hatchet Harry and his unholy horde of henchmen and women. Would they offend foreign markets where grubs, mealworms, and such were delicacies? Would his movie be picketed by the grub and mealworm lobby? Foreign markets and even some domestic, domestic markets were tricky, and in retrospect, history could mark you as a racist or a Nazi, all because you innocently extracted scenes which showed blacks or Jews or whatever ethnic minority were not in favor in the lands you exported your film to. The noble suicide bomber flick tended not to be well received in Israel, 
and don't even think of trying to sell DVDs of Exodus in Gaza. The audience might as well be eyeless. A busboy hovered at his shoulder as he mopped up the last of the juices with a reasonably good baguette. Was the man trying to clean up and get out on time, or was he loitering there for another reason? Then Byron saw the 8 by 11 shape under the shirt. Another screenplay proffered. He in the past would suggest sending them to his office, but after he became annoyed with pushy protestations of genius, he took them and immediately dumped them in the nearest trash receptacle. He, however, learned never to do this within the sight of a restaurant staff. He didn't care to be served food in an establishment where he had dissed an artist. He closed the place and, stepping outside, heard the door lock click behind him. He looked at the title of the script, Long Day's Journey into Fright. He decided not to deep-six the thing, but hand it off instead to Jenny in the typing pool. She was savagely critical of all screenplays since her boyfriend dumped her for an editor at HarperCollins. He once saw her tear a manuscript in half, adjust her panties, squat over it, and pee. Then she returned it in the self-addressed stamped envelope. The valet brought his two-seater. Byron, British in veneer, still found two-seaters far more sexy than the rolling palaces favored by Angelinos and apparently most Americans, save for hippie remnants who either peddled or drove cardboard cars which ran on trans fat. He slipped into his ride, the Italian leather caressing his buttocks, just as Herman Krakauer had during their last twosome. Avoiding candy had become a game for them, albeit a dangerous one. It was the danger that made it enjoyable. Without that, Byron confessed to himself, he had little reason to hang out with Herman. He heard a subtle, <clears throat> and leaning across, let Nita in. Let's just drive a while, okay? I see a roll for you in the next chop shop. I have a treatment, and Tom and Carl are working on the first draft. It would be a supporting role, and no naughty nurse stuff either. Don't worry. Our friend Doris is not casting, and even if she were, I have the say-so, and you have the part. It does come with a condition, however. You have to do something for me. And Nita, long a veteran of the picture business, despite her tender years, reached over and pulled down Byron's fly. He gently removed her exploring hand and zipped himself. Do you want to come to my place? I can make a nice pot of government estate java coffee and make your colon sparkle. No, said Byron, I have a service that comes to the house weekly. What I need you to do is to become a co-ed for a few days. Do you think you can handle that? And you'll need to handle a Bollywood producer in the bargain. Maybe you'll get two boffo rolls out of this business. And Nurse Naughty nodded yes. 31. Bertie Blessed. Do Baxter Bunny again, Bertie, please. Tell me you love me just like Baxter tells Jeannie. Then please sing, I dream of Jeannie, she's a light brown hair. And when he complied, Betty rolled over on top of him and kissed him several times. And Albert Coffin 
was the happiest voiceover artist in the Western world for that minute and for a considerable time thereafter, until, of course, the Simpsons cast read their new contract. You do know the writers stole that joke from an old Bugs Bunny cartoon, said Albert, not wanting to lie. I don't care. I love all your voices. Baxter, of course, but Barney Buzzard is my favorite. But I don't understand why he's always chasing Chester Chicken. Wouldn't he only want to eat things that have been dead for a while? Oh, probably for the same reason that cartoon characters have four fingers. I think the artists would prefer not to represent a buzzard's dinner graphically, and Betty, after thinking on it, nodded assent. They spent the last 36 hours in Albert's hotel suite, ordering from room service, and essentially having a honeymoon without benefit of clergy. Confessing to be the voice of Barney Buzzard was the best confession he ever made, well, at least since the fanciful lies he vet Father Dugan to win the most Hail Marys in Our Father contest in sixth grade. After her question backstage, he responded to it in the affirmative, and he asked her out, and for convenience, they had a late supper at his hotel. She told him about her role in Weimar, and he said he would try to catch it. I'm at minute 47, if you want to fast forward to the part about the inflation, the putsch, whatever that is, and the old guy with the mustache, who was named after the dirigible that went kerblooey in New Jersey. Were you ever in any live-action pictures? I bet you'd be real good. He looked at her for a moment and then said she'd be able to see him in the DVD of Byron Bannister's Serial Lover. But I saw that. I would have remembered if you were in it, she told him. Some restored footage will be on the DVD. It was a legal thing which has been settled. Her eyes brightened and she smiled. I know. You were the man with the impressive voice that they talk about in the middle of the picture. I was wondering why they talked about it and didn't show it. Herr Bresendorfer said he'd much rather show me new to the waist and not just talk about me. I have an idea. Instead of paying $10 to see the movie, I could just show you if you'd like. And Albert thought his head would explode. Why don't we go up to your room? And as they left the restaurant, hand in hand, all the fear, pain, stolen car radios, unpleasant package contents, and the near destruction of his career was in an instant made up for by a kind and generous God. Thirty-two. Bad Battery. And she didn't ask him to call her Scout when they were making love. He actually fielded that request on more than one occasion, and it never failed to put him off his game. When he considered it, she was just a kid and probably didn't know who Peck was, probably never saw Mockingbird. The age difference. He was in his mid-thirties and she was 19. Was he cradle-robbing? Well, not by Hollywood standards, but, of course, those relationships were second or third go-rounds for the toad-like Lotharios squiring around the best that genetics, surgery, and makeup miracles could produce. In his voice work, he had seen some of these ladies in the flesh without their attendance and was not impressed. 
the girl by his side, without surgery, without makeup, and decidedly without clothing, put them all to shame. And she seemed so happy to be with him. Oh, Jesus, he prayed with fervor that it wasn't just his modest fame. Would she have even looked at him a second time if they had been in a bar and he had not used his blessing and his curse? The voice, is that what you liked about him? He rose and, excusing himself, walked to the bathroom and looked critically in the mirror at his naked form. Skinny, slight, pale skin, red hair, but thank God he didn't suffer from the Irish curse. He was not lacking in that department. But did she at least like him for him and not the voice? Was this just a fling that she could bring back to her girlfriends? An experience to be shared? Was he a trophy? Was he simply an addled 30-something that she would laugh about later? He took the hotel robe off the hook, feeling ashamed in his skin, and forced himself to make an entrance. She rushed up to him with a concerned expression. My cell phone's run down. Apparently my ma's been trying to reach me. Something about grandpa. Could I use your phone? He handed it to her, but she only reached voicemail. Bertie, the farm's only an hour away. Do you think we could drive there and see what's going on? And of course, he said, yes. That's the end of the fourth part of Only Small Actors. This is Coffee Dave, K-A-W-F-E-E-D-A-V-E. -E -E. If you want to speak about any of these stories, you can reach me at Coffee Dave, same spelling, at yahoo.com. The next time, the conclusion of Only Small Actors. Until then, have a very good evening and a very good week.